0: the intensity of the, of the growth of the company. And, and so, you know, those two team building persistence and staying focused on what we believe that we can be the best in the world at.
1: Welcome to a new episode of the Terragnostic Talks podcast. My name is Gustav Vidar and together with me in the studio, I have the fantastic Annette André. Welcome, Annette. How are you today?
2: Thank you, Gustav. It's fine, except for they are constructing in behind my balcony. So, oh. yeah, but that's that's life.
1: That's life. Hopefully. A lot of they... worse
2: things can happen.
1: <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, today we have a new podcast with new guests, uh, a startup company. Yes.
2: Viewpoint Molecular Targeting with uh, Michael Schultz and Francis Johnson.
1: Hmm. That would be interesting. I think they, this is a startup. It's a US-based startup company, and they work with alpha therapies. So I think today we will learn a lot more about alpha therapies and how we can treat cancer with alpha radiation. Great. Just take it away.
3: Take it away. Dr. Francis Johnson has a background as a cardiologist. She's a well-published clinician, researcher and educator. Dr. Michael Schultz is Associate Professor with experience from radiology, radiation oncology, paediatrics and chemistry. In 2008, when they both worked at University of Maryland, they started Viewpoint Molecular Targeting, a radiopharmaceutical company with a theragnostic portfolio using alpha tracers.
1: Welcome Francis Johnson and Michael Schultz, Monday
3: morning in Iowa. How are you today? Great. It's sunny and beautiful in Iowa City. How's the weather like there? right now it's beautiful um not too humid started out in the low 50s it'll get up to the 80s today corn is growing it's a little dry we're looking for some rain
2: yes and uh, first congratulations on your success so far with the company viewpoint molecular targeting that is a startup company with a diagnostic portfolio and even more exciting, you use alpha tracers as a treatment. We will come back to that. But um, Francis, the back you, uh, you as a medical doctor as a background, what was the, uh, what were the unmet medical needs you saw starting up the company from the beginning?
3: Well, certainly, we've made huge progress in the treatment of cancer in the last several decades, but there are still cancers that are extraordinarily difficult to treat. And we decided to focus on those areas, the first two being um, metastatic melanoma and then refractory neuroendocrine tumors.
2: And the the reason why you you picked those ones, what, what was
3: it? Well, I think for neuroendocrine tumors, that's an area where clearly radiotherapies uh, are effective. And so we thought that bringing alpha particle therapy to that indication would make it even more effective and increase our chances of having complete remissions uh, or at least, um, you know, durable remissions. And then in metastatic melanoma, that was an area where radionuclide therapy has not been proven, but it is an area where we thought that we could really um, take advantage of the science that we're seeing that immunotherapies and radiotherapy can be complementary and augment the effectiveness of each one. And melanoma is an immune responsive tumor. Uh, it's where immunotherapies have been quite effective, but we still have 50% of patients who do not respond. And there's an incredible medical need there and it's worth a shot.
1: And you, So you have uh, like two product lines, one for melanoma, metastatic melanoma, and one for for never endocrine tumors. Uh, and and in both lines you're using isotope of lead uh, linked to the peptides and you have uh, lead 203 for for imaging and lead uh, 213 13 uh, for treatment um, our listeners may be more familiar with letitium and gallium because that that's what we had talked about in previous episodes why lead
0: Mike do you that's want it. to take that I would you know that's a really great question and and, and thank you for asking that um so you know, in the early part of my career as a radio pharmaceutical scientist and radio biologist in, in the Department of Radiology at the University of Iowa, we explored several different avenues of molecular targeting for delivering radiation specifically to the tumor microenvironment um, while, you know, um, minimizing the risk of off-target toxicities and, and localization of radiation in, in places where we didn't want it to go. And, it turned out that, you know, I really felt like these small peptides and, and some small molecules were gonna be the gonna be the type of molecular targeting ligands that were gonna be the most effective. So these these molecules have relatively fast pharmacokinetics. So they they rapidly accumulate in, in tumors and then the residual radiation is excreted very rapidly. So it made sense to oh, me to choose. So the clearance
1: a, is quite fast in the body, so it's it will not stay longer than needed and, and in that's, the body. Then. That's,
0: yes, that's correct. And mm-hmm. so this was the ide- the ideal. And mm-hmm. and so it made sense to me to choose radioisotopes to use that had half lives that really matched up well with that type of fast pharmacokinetic profile. And I was also convinced from a very very early. Uh, time in my career that alpha particle radionuclide therapy could be the most effective form of of radiation therapy in the radiopharmaceutical setting mm-hmm. and and lead 212 as a radionuclide that could be used for alpha particle radionuclide therapy Key, could be chelated very well and it had, you know, the kind of half-life that was, you know, that was going to be the most m- well-matched to the kind of PK properties that we expected these peptides and small molecules to have. And, and following along on that, it's the only radionuclide at this moment that has an elementally matched isotope that can be used for imaging in lead 203. So lead 203, on the other hand, has a, has a relatively long half-life in, in 52 hours. And what that means is that it can be effective to do personalized imaging to develop a detailed understanding of the PK properties of the radio labeled radiopharmaceutical in the in vivo setting. So that means that you could do imaging in patients, for example, at one hours, four hours, and maybe 24 hours or longer using uh, lead 203 for imaging. So you have an a elementally identical pair where their chemistries and biochemistries will be identical because the, they're the same element and they're radio radiolabeled uh, in the same way so that you can, you can accurately predict the dosimetry of the therapeutic before you administer the therapeutic to the patient.
1: Okay, so there's a, like a perfect match between these
0: isotopes. I, th- I think it, I think it is, I, it's interesting. I have heard, I've heard it called an ideal, you know, so it is the ideal that the, the, the targeting ligand for imaging and the targeting ligand for the, ligand for the therapy are ele- elementally identical. And so in this case, it truly is that way. So it's the only pair that you can use for alpha particle radionuclide therapy it has that has that property.
1: Lead two of three is a, a spect tracer Can you see uh, some advantage? Because previous in previous episodes we talked a lot of with gallium and we talked about zirconium and other isotopes. That's these PET isotopes. Uh, could you see any advantage of using a SPECT isotope?
0: So that's a great question too. And you know, on the I guess from an ideal perspective, a PET isotope, you know, generally would would, you know, potentially render images that might be sharper. However, you know, with this in what we're finding is that even with current spec imaging technologies for situations where you have a relatively, relatively high signal to noise ratio. So in some cases, you know, for some organs where you might have accumulation and retention of the radio pharmaceutical above background, then those areas may, may be areas that might be difficult to image. But for, for situations such as, you know, somatostatin receptor positive tumors where the expression is relatively high, particularly at later time points because these radiopharmaceuticals that we develop have rel- relatively fast PK properties, where the signal to noise ratio is is relatively high then you know you can get pretty sharp images with spect and that can be effective and certainly certainly for developing understanding of other organ dosimetry for the kidneys the liver the heart and other organs and, and bone marrow the lead you know the lead 203 tracer can be effective for for helping you to understand what the clearance rates are for these different organs and to do very accurate other organ toxicity predictions, or I should say other organ, um, you know, medical physics, dosimetry.
1: Okay. Is it the same properties for melanoma as well? You said that uh, it's, it's good imaging for, for never endocrine tumors with the SSDR uh, receptors, but is it uh, similar with, with uh, uh, the melanoma?
0: That, that's, a great, that's a great question. And I think um, I think that that remains to be seen. I think it's, you know, the, the somatostatin receptor positive, um, tumors, you know, that's a, rel- a well validated target where we, for, you know, several indications, including neuroendocrine tumors and, and other types of cancers. We're, you know, venturing into melanoma with, with um, not as much target validation in, in humans, so we'll, we'll find out. But the, in a general sense, where you have patients that have relatively high receptor expression, then you'll have, that'll be the general case. So you can imagine a lead 203 agent for prostate cancer where you have PSMA expression that's very high. The potential for imaging with, with you know, imaging other targets um, that we've seen that have emerged in the recent past where the signal to noise ratio is, is relatively high, then in those cases in general, this platform that we have can be used effectively.
1: How is uh, lead two hundred three produced? Is a cyclotron produced or or?
0: Yes, it's uh, the you know the the production is relatively straightforward using a um, a cyclotron, uh, generally a higher energy cyclotron, a tr twenty four or a thirty or something like that, uh, thirty MeV cyclotron could be used for for making it or a little bit lower energy works perfectly well, and um, so the the production of lead two hundred three is relatively straightforward. So
1: it can be produced in a in a like a, a bigger cyclotron center and and send out to the customer because the half life of the lead two hundred three is quite quite long. Then
0: yes, that's an excellent yeah. point. So mm-hmm. so while lead two twelve is uh, is produced using radium two twenty four lead two twelve generators that are likely to be regional in their in their you know manufacturing and distribution of the radiopharmaceuticals, the lead two hundred three imaging studies can be done um, with product that is produced in a central location and can be shipped, um, you know, overnight for imaging the next day or the or or two days after that because the half life is long enough to allow that. So central manufacturing of lead two hundred three and distribution continentally, as opposed to lead two twelve, that is likely to be more regional in scope.
1: So, and uh, then I think for for led to to twelve, you have an invention. you have a producer, you have your own generator that producing?
0: We do. We do tell uh, us more. Sure, that actually, that's a great story. I think that you know when the company started, we really didn't expect or necessarily uh, want to be a generator company. Um, we were more focused on the molecular targeting aspects. Of radiopharmaceutical development and the chemistry that goes along with that, including a a chelator that we developed that was specifically for four-lead isotopes. But you know, as we as we grew and the company matured, we really started to understand that it was going to be really important for us to control the supply chain for our therapeutics. And and the only way to do that really was to was to develop a, a generator of our own. Um, Fortunately for us, uh, my background in radiochemical separations that dates dates back um, you know to the 1990s uh, when you know what, when I started in radiochemistry and radiochemical separations it I really started with separations chemistry that included lead separation and isolation for other applications I was and so that meant that we really did understand the chemistry and and we do have a, a proprietary way to be able to isolate the radium two hundred and twenty-four as well as the lead two hundred and twelve that um, gives us, you know, hyper pure lead two hundred and twelve that can be used for the radio pharmaceutical.
1: Hmm. So the generator a little bit was invented by mistake. Then this not 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 in the original plan. Not so yeah.
2: unusual,
1: you would say. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we need to stay back a little bit. I'm sorry, Annette.
2: No, no, no. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, now it's a lot of alpha tracer, and it's a fascinating uh, story that you have told, and, and also the strength. Where do you see comparing, for example, um, never endocrine tumors? This, what we are used to, is more beta tracers, beta emitters. Where, where do you put the alpha, beta in perspective in the treatment arsenal?
0: So that's another great question, and I think um, you know from from my perspective, I think that you know we've seen some success with with beta emitters for neuroendocrine tumor therapy, and these certainly have been effective and have improved outcomes. I think the potential that we're seeing with the you know with alpha particle therapies, though, is this potential for you know complete and durable responses, and and I think that that has to do with the 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 different properties of alpha particles that, you know, potentially make them more effective for uh, tumor cell killing. And that is, you know, relatable to, you know, the high linear energy transfer of the, of the massive alpha particle and its interaction with, you know, nuclear DNA that causes, that causes you know, catastrophic cell death that can't, can't be repaired. And, and so this means that if the molecular targeting is effective, you have a good chance of having, you know, a, a greater chance for an objective response, I think, than, than with beta particle emitters.
2: Do you see any limitations with the, the alpha particles?
3: I think it's important to realize that we're still, you know, very early you know, in the clinical testing of radiopharmaceuticals. And um, we get very excited about objective response rates. We saw that with beta therapy. Um, We're seeing it with alpha therapy with both actinium-225 and lead-212 for neuroendocrine tumors. But we really don't know the whole story yet. We know that people who have received beta therapy are having recurrences, we also know that there is some risk to um, the bone marrow and the kidneys. That there have been, um, you know, secondary malignancies. And in our animal models, you know, we can show that alpha particle therapy is well tolerated, and we get complete and durable responses. We do not know what that is going to look like in people. But, of course, we're very helpful because the responses are more dramatic than what we see with beta therapy. But in the long term, it's really going to be a balance between this responsiveness that we see early and what toxicities we might have later. Right? And we just we're just in a spot where we have to test and test appropriately, and this is one of the reasons why we really believe it's worthwhile to have the matched theranostic pair so that we can be very precise about dosimetry. That may not be necessary for launching a product, but is certainly going to be important for optimizing our treatment and determining which patients can benefit the most. Interesting. And the so, spec, you know, spect can be used almost anywhere in the world, mm, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. more spect cameras and pet uh, cameras uh, in yes. the world. and it's of course you can you can reach the the the, for the undeveloped part of the world as well. Yeah. So, where are you now with your with your product portfolio? Have you started uh, is it still pre-clinical or are you in a uh, phase 1 uh setting or where are you in your portfolio?
3: So we have begun um, treatment with our imaging agents. And so um, we are doing melanoma at Mayo Clinic Rochester and uh, then we'll be uh, starting very soon. We have FDA approval to start with the imaging agent at the University of Iowa for neuroendocrine tumors.
2: And how soon is that? Well,
3: you know, I think that it depends a little bit about, um, you know, site startup, but we're hoping within the next couple months. Yes. Wow.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just to congratulate you and uh, wow, what a a journey you have done. And the company really started already in 2008 when uh, you both worked at the University of Maryland, as we have understood. Um, and it's a lot of things has hap, happened and important steps that you have taken to be successful. Uh, for those how, who is listening now, what would you that work in academia, maybe have an idea? What would you give them as advice? What is important?
0: Wow. That's a big question. So let me see if I can unpack that a little bit and sort of break it apart into some different pieces of the puzzle. I think that you know we we did recognize early on that it was something you know starting a company was something that that we wanted to do that that you know we 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 were academics and in in many ways we were traditional academics in the idea that You know, you write papers and and you write grants and then you come up with new ideas to write more papers and more grants. But we did have this idea that we really wanted to see an idea through, you know, to full realization. And I think, you know, the commercial part of that is necessary in order to get access to the kinds of resources that you really need to do that, you know, at some some level. And so... um, so 2008 was we actually started the company in 2008 when we had both been recruited to the University of Iowa. So it wasn't too long after that dual recruitment to the University of Iowa that we decided that we would that we would start the company. And I think along the lines of, you know, what are some important aspects of of that? Number one is persistence. You know, if you have an idea and you really feel like it's something that, you know, needs its It's time to to test, you know, know, how far can this really go? How effective can it really be? And I was convinced that, you know, targeted alpha particle radionuclide therapy could be a really effective um, form of cancer treatment. And, And so, and the second thing that I would say is building the right team of people. So the company started in 2008. I don't think that we really had put together the right team of people that were really going to work well together early on in company development and that that really takes a tremendous amount of effort to work on we spend we spend an awful lot of time in the company working on you know corporate culture and ways of communicating and um, and and helping people to Find the right seat on the bus where their real dreams and aspirations can be most well-founded, and I think those are, from my perspective, those those are two things that that are super important. That I would, I would really encourage people if you were starting, you know, if you were going to move from this academic entrepreneur to building a company, those two things are are persistence. Um, and and building building a team of people and, and really really working at helping people to find the place in the company that's gonna that 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 is going to help them to flourish the way they would like to see their career go. I think those two things are super important.
2: And uh, Francis, is it something more that you see? Thank you so much, Michael. That very important and and helpful. Francis, what do you
3: think? So this is the second company that I've co-founded. So the first one was when I was a fairly young faculty member at Stanford, and we were interested in making a molecular diagnostic test to screen for transplant rejection. And so it was that um, process that made me realize there were certain things that just would not move forward in the context of academics. It was Trying to use big data at a time when big data was not a popular concept for research, right? So it was hard to get research dollars to implement that strategy to solve a problem. And so I think that making the leap out of academics into a business is when you see a problem and you do not see a way within the structure you're working in to solve it. That you need a different um, environment, you need different um, sort of goals, than are well aligned with your academic um, situation and this is this is a thing that's not easy for people who are scientists or physicians or physician scientists it, it's a it, the transition out of academics into a business is not um, comfortable it's really not comfortable but if you want if you want to solve that problem <laughs> Badly can do enough, it. you'll do it, yeah. and you'll put the people around you that will help you to do and it. And
2: the people, then, what people did you did you? Go, I mean, you say the team. Is it some recipe on what kind of people? Is
0: it? Uh, sure, what? that's that's a great question, and and I think I, I'll talk about early on. You know, our co-founder Hayward Coleman was a businessman who who I had you know sort of worked tangentially with, I worked for a company that he owned at one point. And the thing, you know, so we really recognized early on that we needed somebody with business experience to help us to get the business just together, the, you know, the nuts and bolts of what is a company, how do you put that together? And so, you know, everybody that worked for Hayward Coleman loved Hayward Coleman. And, and so he was somebody that I knew that I could trust And, and so I went to Hayward and asked him to help us to put the company together. And so that was a, that was a key initial recruitment, you know, somebody that you get along with somebody that, that, that you, you know, you're going to be able to get along with when things aren't going so well, because, you know, there's going to be from time to time, there's going to be some hard things. (laughs) And so you need that, these people that you bring on board with you to, you know, to, to be people that you're sure that you can get along with very, very well. And Hayward was was one of those key recruitments to start with um, to help us to you know to put the fundamentals of the company together. And and I'll let Fran talk a little bit about team building, you know, as the company is growing. Sure. So, you know, the way we did it here
3: in Iowa was take advantage of all of the talent that was concentrated in this university town. Um, And and so we had some entrepreneurial um, accelerator type activities and people that we met. And then we did a lot of um, gig economy kind of work with people that were experts in a particular thing to do a particular project to move things forward. And then we started getting interns. And the very best, you know, biochemical engineering or biology or chemistry folks that stayed for several years and really um, enjoyed the work, well, they came on as as our employees. And so it's been really wonderful. I think that um, having a strong entrepreneurial um, development kind of group helps um, both at the University of Iowa with the um, business school and the Entrepreneurial Development Center, EDC in Cedar Rapids, we got education and support So that if we wanted to, you know, do just nuts and bolts, business agreements, charters, things like that, uh, they knew who to refer us to, what lawyer to go to, what contract to use, uh, what to watch out for. Hmm. Um, The networking is very important in business, just as it is in our scientific communities.
1: Yeah. How was it from you, you are, as was talked about previously, you are from the academia uh, uh, uh and, and you go into the business. How is it because when you're starting this type of company, you also need some foundings, maybe, and you need some money to 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 hire people. How how was that step for you? Is it tough or or can you elaborate a little bit about that?
3: I think that that's always tough. Um Here in Iowa, we didn't have a large biotech community. And so investors were not eager to support us because it's not something that they really knew about. So fortunately, uh, the Small Business Innovation Research Grant portion of the NIH Is the the largest business accelerator and investor in the country. And we were able to um, write grants and get contracts through the National Cancer Institute Small Business um, Innovation Research Program. Uh, We got over 10 million over the last six years. And
2: what do you think they saw?
3: Well, um, there were people there that believed in radio pharmaceuticals and targeted radio pharmaceutical therapy, and there was a um, an announcement for contracts that would support that. This comes out yearly, and so we were we were watching when that came out. Um, not many people were believing in radio pharmaceuticals at the time, but we saw that and we were able to fit into that that contract. And it supported research through several phases of development. Uh, we had a very critical time, very critical time. And after that, then we were able to get angel funding um, from people that had been watching us succeed for several years. We showed them. <laughs> Uh,
1: what do you think about the the future now because we had in a previous episode we had Oliver Sartor in the podcast uh, talking Mm -hmm. about the vision and he said that that vision being positive it is is the terror agnostic breakthrough do you agree on that will it be more easy for companies like your, a startup company to, to get foundings or, or investors? Or...
3: Absolutely. We are already seeing that. We're seeing a lot of money pouring into uh, radio pharmaceutical development. Uh, that's that's great. That's yeah. great for everyone uh, and that'll be great for us too.
1: Mm-hmm. So for your company, uh, what, what are the challenges ahead now? Of course, you have done a great job so far, but but what is the this what is the next step for your company now?
3: You know, it's really all about delivering on the clinical trials, and that is a, another really big step for a company to go from you know a preclinical R and D company to a clinical stage company because you need a whole new team of people with different focus. Um, you know, for us, it's really going to be about bringing the data home, and if that looks good, then um, we'll be off and, and running to the next level.
1: Fantastic. We in the to manufacturing,
3: wait for... of course, uh, is going to be yeah. important too. So Dr. Schultz yeah. has his uh, work cut out for him, <laughs> so he can <laughs> support the clinical trials. <laughs>
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that, Fran. There's definitely. Um, I think you know. In some ways, that you know, the next steps for us are you know really still to stay focused on you know those key things that I talked about earlier. You know, it's persistence because we're we are we are breaking ground in some areas here. You know, there have been studies with lead to lead isotopes that have demonstrated the potential. So that's a a key you know that's a key marker that this can be successful because it has been successful. We have seen complete durable remissions with patients with and well tolerated um, cancer, you know, alpha particle radionuclide therapies for cancer. But-
1: So, so you're not totally the dark water.
0: That's exactly there, right. Hmm. That's exactly right. And that's, impor- that's an important key hmm. to a venture like this that indicates that it can be successful because it has been, but it's, it's persistence. And it's also, as Fran mentioned, you know, we while still staying in what we call our hedgehog state where we're focused on you know, image-guided, dosimetry-based, alpha particle, targeted radionuclide therapy for cancer, but at, at the same time, bringing new people in that have the expertise to help us to be able to grow the company, and at the same time, keep this same culture that keeps a team of people together and, you know, in a relatively intense situation, they know that they can count on each other and, and they, they wind up enjoying the intensity of the, of the growth of the company. And, and so, you know, those two team building, persistence, and staying focused on what we believe that we can be the best in the world at.
1: it are they drilling? The they are drilling
2: like uh, so. <laughs> I'm, so I'm, I'm very frustrated You have to cut this away.
3: <laughs>
2: but thank you for the recipe. It's fantastic, and that you nailed down those different steps. And no wonder you have been successful.
3: You, oh, maybe not. <laughs> uh,
2: except for the uh, phase three tries and the, this, the uh, getting the data uh, result what more do you see now in the te- concept of diagnostics
3: I think in the future um individualized dosimetry will eventually have its day mm. I think You think
1: so I
3: I think it will it will be a long time but I think that If we believe that a dosimetry plan that's individualized is reasonable for external beam radiation therapy, and we utilize a medical physicist to do that, I don't think it's that big a leap to bring a patient to the clinic and do an imaging scan and have that same medical physicist make a dosimetry plan, that's right for that patient. It may take a long time before we are there from a commercial standpoint, but I think that eventually the physicians and the patients and perhaps the uh, approving agencies will expect it.
1: Interesting because this this is something we have discussed uh, a lot with with people around in, in the nordics uh, uh, about dosimetry and i think we have we have a, a journey to be there where we can you know equalize radiation treatment and diagnostics but but give us 5 or 10 years so we, we may, may be really important I
0: yeah I think I, yeah if i could um, i you know i really agree with what fran has to say there and this is not just our ideas you know uh, one of the learnings that we had from um, uh, one of these entrepreneurial programs that Fran that Fran talked about that we were fortunate to be selected for was a program called the ICOR, and ICOR was an N- National Cancer Institute sponsored program that that basically was a um, was focused on getting us out of the building and going out and talking to the physicians and patients that you know, we're being treated to get a better understanding of how this theranostic paradigm could really fit in with current patient care scenarios and how they felt about it and what were the key challenges. And I think that that, that idea of getting out of the building and going to talk to people has, you know, has sort of been something that we've adopted as, as a style, part of our company culture. And so we spend quite a bit of time trying to talk to people and you know this is what they're telling us that they would they would really like to use this sort of the real power of the theranostic paradigm to take care of their patients if you can if you can do an imaging scan and have a trained medical physicist give you a dosimetry plan for that then then they're they're saying that they would really like to see that and so it's Um, And certainly at the early stages of development for a radiopharmaceutical, if you have an imaging agent that can help you to identify more quickly doses that could potentially be effective, but still largely result in under the threshold for the potential for toxicities based on medical physics, then that actually has a chance to maybe get you to earlier to effective doses for patients in the early stages of radiopharmaceutical development. And so that's you know, the, the positive benefit for that. Um, and so we don't look at it like an additional expense. We look at it as a tool for perhaps moving more quickly to doses that could be effective for patient care.
2: Promising, promising future. Um, And and so you have a lot of uh, goals for the future from a professional state, I would say, uh, great visions, and uh, also, I mean, on the more personal level,
3: what do you see? Well, I see this as my last best professional effort. Um, My last, best professional effort. And so I'll stay with Viewpoint um, as long as I feel like I'm contributing and we're solving the problem that we came here to solve. And after that, uh, personally, I'm going to enjoy the fruits of my labor. And what do you do then? Well... My personal, <laughs> my personal folly is that I, I bought a, a farm and I like organic uh, local food and I'm going to make more of it available here.
1: That's a promising future. Michael, will you join to the farm or do you still have any ideas that you need to, to work out in the lab?
0: Well, <laughs> I, I have to say I still have some ideas left in me. Um, And I think that they can be transformative and I'm going to continue to work on that for a while. But, you know, as you know, um, Fran and I are a husband and wife founder team. um, And so my future is definitely um, farming sometime in the future.
1: Then you think you may need a, a small chemistry lab at the
0: farm them you know I've thought, I've thought about that <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay uh,
0: I
3: can continue to do that work for a long long time but as as founders um you you need to be uh cognizant that that company is going to hopefully survive you right that you're going to build a company that's strong that's independent that has really smart, motivated people in it, and they are going to take it forward um, to be bigger and better. That's our goal.
1: Great. Uh, Who do you think we should invite to the podcast as our next guest?
3: Let's see. You've already had Oliver. Um,
0: And I'm I'm sort of i'm I'm not sure who the 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 next interview might be. Um, i'd have to I'd have to look through your list again and try and figure out who would be the right person. Well to, this isn't exactly
3: person. startup, but what about some of our collaborators in the u k? You know, because they've been really um, anxious to sort of do more work in the radiopharmaceutical area. They've been working through how to get newer isotopes.
0: I think that's a great idea, Fran. You know, you know somebody like, you know, right now in the United Kingdom, there is a renaissance of, you know, radionuclide-based cancer imaging and therapy. And I think that renaissance is fueled by you know, the su- successes that they're seeing around them in other countries where Theranostics are being, you know, are being embraced. And and certainly, I can, I can think that um, some academics that we've talked to would be very interested in talking with you. And then potentially some of the, you know, government organizations, like the National Nuclear Laboratory, Phil Blower at King's college would be two people, there's, there's people in both of those organizations that I think that would be delighted to talk, talk to you about the, the activities that are going on in the UK to, to bring this type of, of image-guided radionuclide therapy to cancer patients there.
1: Thank you. Uh, and then we have the Nobel Prize question that we, we always have in this podcast. Uh, who do you think should receive the Nobel Prize for their efforts in, in diagnostics?
0: Wow. You know, I, I, I have, I, there's, I'm going to say that I was really inspired by the work that Roy Larson did to bring Al Geta out of its academic roots and into the commercial space and developing a product that could be manufactured and distributed internationally. I think that that was groundbreaking in bringing alpha particle therapy to cancer patients, and I think that, as sort of like the founder founder, um, you know that's that's one team. I should say there's a whole team, and I had the opportunity to work with, with Algetta as a consultant at one point, point. and it was it was it was inspirational, and and part of the reason that I think that we're talking today. So for me. Um, Roy, Roy Larson and that whole team and I'll get to, you know, really um, has a special place. Good choice.
1: Thank you for today. Thank you for your interesting story
0: about your company. Well, thank you for having Thanks. us. We're, yeah, this was delightful. Thank you very thank much. Thank
2: you for your generosity to share and also for continuing the good way, I would say, both with the company And with a farm.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right. Good day. Okay,
1: Anna. that was Frances and Michael from uh, Viewpoint Molecular Targeting, husband and wife uh, with a startup company in Iowa. Interesting podcast. I learned more about alpha therapies and how that could be... uh, one important step for for diagnostic in the future.
2: Yeah, how it fits in for to moving forward, very promising.
1: An interesting product portfolio. Yes,
2: definitely.
1: And we we'll, yes, and we will follow up with more startup companies actually uh, that working on alpha therapy. So uh, check the podcast out. More to come. So should we close for today? Good idea. Uh, still drilling in the background, but yes, yes. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, please send us an email, uh, podcast at sanordic.se or visit our LinkedIn side or our website to find out latest news about Sanordic and the podcast.
2: Stay safe. Stay tuned. Bye-bye.